This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and joining me again is Mr. Matt Caraccio. Matt, week 11 in the books the aftermath of LSU Alabama, the new college football playoff rankings are out. How are you doing, my friend, this evening? Well, I think the appropriate word there was aftermath because, I mean, you feel as if there was a you know cataclysmic event that occurred in college football this past weekend with Minnesota going up against Penn State and LSU, of course, going up with Alabama. So um, I, I think the word cataclysmic describes it perfectly because – we really do have a whole new world, so to speak, of things to talk about. Many of them the same, but I think the perspective and the the um, unanimous uh, domination of a particular school may be in jeopardy this particular year. So cataclysmic sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into the NFL draft report for Week 11 momentarily, but the new playoff rankings are out. LSU sits atop. I told you whoever won that LSU-Alabama game was going to catapult over Ohio State, rightfully so, and LSU did that. Ohio State at number two. Clemson uh, jumps up to number three. Georgia at four, and then Alabama with the loss at five, which already starts opening up the discussion of we're probably going to see at least one, maybe even two one-loss teams in this thing. Alabama, even with the loss this weekend, is still going to be heard from. I have I have a distinct feeling we could see a rematch of that LSU-Alabama classic game this past weekend in the first round, the semifinal round. I would not be surprised if we get that rematch in the semifinals of the college football playoff. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to complain about Alabama. Should they be allowed to be in it? They're not going to get a chance probably to win the SEC now. And then are they... Do they deserve to be in it over a one-loss Big 12 or Pac-12 championship team, whether that team you know, is Oregon, uh, whether it's the Big 10 champion, whether that's you know, Penn State or Minnesota at this point, which is you know, moved all the way up to number eight now in the college football playoff rankings. And then obviously if Oregon goes on and wins the Pac-12, are they going to be ahead of Alabama? And it's a fascinating conversation. It kind of goes back to the whole, are you picking the best four teams on paper in terms of who's going to create the best playoff experience in terms of quality games? Or are you checking off boxes of a resume and then a conference champion checks a big box off where Alabama can't? And that's going to be the question at large again. And Quick thoughts on, on that situation and what what happens if Georgia wins out and Alabama wins out? They're both one loss right now. It's 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 Georgia there, but what what do we think could happen with that? Well, I mean, I, I think what we should start kind of understanding a little bit, and I'm just going to throw this out there. I mean, I think I heard it on the first take uh, or on the first team, which is uh, uh, a show on ESPN in the mornings. Really, really well done. Um, and one of the things that they were talking about is the rankings as a reflection of, you know, what the committee values. 
And I think it was a really interesting thought because, you know, the community is obviously made up of a group of people. And while they are mandated with a certain rubric, so to speak, for evaluating these teams, it is interesting to notice how they weigh things. And despite their mandates and how they're supposed to weigh them, whether it be, you know, definitively by certain percentages or not, we know the general framework is supposed to be strength of schedule. We know it's supposed to be um, the eye test, quote unquote, the eye test. Um, we know it's supposed to be, um, you know, championships. If you're the, you know, the conference champion, that weighs very heavily in the committee's favor. But every year it is a different committee. So when you look at this particular rankings and you kind of look at it, my question to, to really back to you, Paul, is I'm going to say to you, I look at this ranking and I'm looking at a committee that seems to be valuing probably who the best team is right now, who's playing well, who are the best put together teams. And it looks like the fact that Alabama is at number five and the fact that Minnesota shot all the way up to number eight, given the way they handled Penn State. I got to think the eye test may be weighing pretty heavily in this discussion. Yeah, I, I think I think it could be. I mean, Georgia, I think this week's win kind of catapulted them up a little bit, obviously, but their loss, see, this, is where, this is where it gets kind of a gray area because think about Georgia's loss compared to Alabama's loss, right? You know, Georgia's loss is a game against – uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was South Carolina. Like it wasn't, it was a poor performance by Georgia. You know, Jake Fromm was just terrible in that game. And then Alabama loses, but they lose to arguably the most talented team in the country in LSU. So it's like, okay. So I think it's a little bit more of kind of the resume, but in terms of not only this, the resume, though, like how you look recently, I think goes a long way. So I think, you know, by the end of the year, I think those sometimes level out a little bit. But I think right now, Georgia with a good, you know, a good win two weeks ago and then took care of business this past week is what I should have said before. Uh, they haven't, they got past their mistake. And I think they're going to make Alabama show them that this is a blip on the radar a little bit. And maybe, you know, maybe Georgia stays ahead of them. Maybe Georgia has to slip up again for Alabama to get in there. Maybe Minnesota has to lose. You know, I think it would be hard to have a power five team go undefeated and win their conference and not be in over a one loss Alabama or Georgia team. I mean, if Minnesota runs the table, they deserve to be in the playoff. I mean, that would be, that would be a very, a very something that I do not think would sit well with the fan base of college football. Uh, if Minnesota was to go undefeated, win their conference and then a one loss, uh, you know, Alabama team get in there. No, I agree with that. I, I think the conference champions from the, you know, from the, from the big 10 and from the sec, um, are, are absolutely in. I think that's going to be a no brainer. So I think if you play in the Big Ten, um, I think if you play in the, you know, if you play in the SEC, I think it's, it's kind of a no brainer. I think you're going to kind of be in there. You know, um, I think those two conferences to me are, are the strongest. I think they have the, the most diversity and, and maximum amount of, uh, teams that are quality teams overall. Um, we know the ACC took a little bit of a step back. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that think, you know, if Clemson wins out, there's no way Clemson is left out. And to, to be very honest with you, the, the rankings so far pretty much illustrate that. So if Clemson wins out, Clemson's is in, Clemson is in, whoever wins the SEC is going to go in. And then the question is what happens with, it seems like the same thing every year, big 12, 
and Pac-10, right? I mean, that just ends up being what it is. Those two conferences always seem like the two that are constantly vying for that last spot. And with that in mind, you know, the reason why I think Alabama is going to hang around, Paul, and I think this is probably a great transition right into the NFL draft report is because I think the, I think the committee is going to recognize not, not as an excuse, but as a reality of the situation, you got to a playing on one foot, not completely on one foot, but he was injured during that game. So you wonder to what degree that's going to resonate as a long-term kind of viable thing. It's not an excuse. I wouldn't classify it as an excuse at all. But I'm wondering is, are they going to say that in that game were both teams really full strength? And they may argue that. I don't know. Yeah, and I think you're right. And it is the perfect pivot point to the NFL draft report for week 11, starting with Joe Burrow, starting with Tua. I mean, the game... Everything about these two guys, it's becoming it's becoming obvious that these guys are going to be two of the first picks in the NFL draft, possibly number one and number two. There's a lot of quarterback needy teams, and there's teams that maybe don't need a quarterback that could maybe flip flop and trade down a pick or two. I I think we are are we are on a crash course collision with these two guys going at the top of the 2020 NFL draft. It's going to be a, what do the teams prefer? Is it Joe Burrow? Is it Tua? Does Joe Burrow's age, I think when he gets drafted, he'll be 23. Does that sway anybody? Does Tua's ankle and long-term ramifications of maybe him and his injuries, does that sway anyone? I think those are basically... The, the two wild cards when you, when you watch these players, you know, to, uh, you know, his ability to make things happen in the pocket, to buy and extend time, his touch and anticipation, his accuracy, his touch on vertical passes. You know, he has shown the ability to play with toughness. And, and, you know, this week, I think, speaks volumes on his character and personality and the type of leader you want. And then Joe Burrow, he just keeps answering the bell. And I, I think people forget, like, he finished pretty strong last year. You know, like, if you go back and watch some of his games last year, he didn't finish terribly down the stretch. It took him a little bit of time last year. I mean, listen, he wasn't playing as good as he was this year. But at the same time, he was also... He was also showing some signs last year. There was a reason when I watched him this summer, I walked away thinking, oh, this guy could be a late, you know, a late round three pick. You know, like he could even sneak into the top 100 due to his physical attributes and stuff. And then I said, it'll be interesting to see if he continues to show progress and development this year. And he's just taking it out of the park. His ability to keep his eyes downfield, navigate the pocket, slide in the pocket, you know, constantly you know, being able to extend plays. He doesn't have the athleticism and the speed and and agility of a Tua, but he has the ability to pick up yards with his legs as well, but more utilize it to buy himself time in the pocket and keep his eyes downfield. He's got plenty of arm strength. It's not elite arm strength, but it's good to very good. He can make every NFL throw. That won't be an issue at the next level. And he just keeps answering the bell. So I don't know, maybe the, it seems like the Bengals are on the fast track to that first pick. It'll be interesting to see. Do they like Tua? Do they like Joe Burrow? You know, do the Dolphins get 
whoever they don't pick is do the Redskins potentially move on from Dwayne Haskins, a lot of Cardinals and Josh Rosen last year, if they're picking that high. I mean, I know it's blasphemy to say, but both New York teams are in the mix to be picking that high. Would one of the New York teams think about taking one of these guys and then trading the incumbent? I don't see that with Daniel Jones and the Giants right now, because I think he's shown enough uh, and, and done enough this year. And I don't think the Jets are going to be ready to move on from Tim Donald either. But those teams could be in position to potentially be able to open up the vault and say, listen, you want one of these guys? We're sitting there with the golden ticket. Make us an offer to for us to move down. And both New York teams, who if any of them are picking number two, could be in a really strong position uh, from a trade stance perspective because these guys are both worth it. Any any thoughts? I mean, we've talked about Tua a lot. So, and any any more thoughts quickly on Tua, but in particular Joe Burrow? Yeah, I, I think this is like you know what else have we learned? That's kind of how I looked at this past weekend. You know, what have we learned that's new, or what have we added to the kind of the the dossier for each one of these players? And when it came to Tua, I think the biggest thing that I learned about Tua this weekend is he's able to play under great duress and great um and, and great you know physical pain because I do think that he was injured. I, I I think he was injured. I think he was in pain. I don't think he was moving the same way. But yet he was still able to make plays and he was still able to keep his team in the game. And yes, yes, he absolutely had picks. Yes, there were on him. Yes, there were times where he wasn't as efficient as he could have been. All that's reality. But I still think that he showed the ability to kind of quote unquote answer the bell, play under duress and make plays when he needed to. I think that his ability on that, I guess I want to say choreographed play where he looked towards the sideline and then threw the touchdown to Devonta Smith, where it looked like the LSU cornerback was sleeping. If I don't know if you recall that play specifically, that to me probably was one of the most now granted, was it choreographed? Sure. Sure. Definitely probably was, but it, it, I bought it. I bought it. I didn't know they were snapping the ball. Everybody on the LSU side of the ball bought it. That, to me, shows the versatility of a guy like Tua. I don't think people really appreciate... Not. I, don't, I think there's a lot of people that appreciate it, but I just can't get over how impressive that play was because it's not just about the, the mannerisms and the, the miming, so to speak, of what he was doing, the actual gestures... It was the way he sold it. It's the way the whole team sold it. It was the way the entire play went that allowed them to cash in on a very, very absent-minded play by the LSU corners. And that particular play really resonated with me on a different level of skill that I think Tua kind of kind of showed us that week, which is, you know, his ability to run an offense, his ability to execute, his ability to play, his ability to adapt exceeds a lot of different levels. And I think that when we talk about the best players in this draft, two has got to be in the mix. When we talk about the best skill players in this draft, it's hard to it's hard to not argue that he's probably one of the top, if not the top player. And Joe Burrows, what did I learn about Joe Burrows? Man, I learned that Joe Burrows deserves to be that second quarterback or first quarterback off the board. And I know that that was something that we were like, man, are we really going to put him there with Justin Herbert? Are we really going to do that? Here's my answer. Yeah. Yeah, we are. And we're going to put, I'm probably putting him ahead of Justin Herbert now because the pass rush of Alabama was no joke. The coverage windows and the windows he was throwing into were absolutely no joke and tight. 
And he was making feathered throws on the move, sliding in the pocket, as you described earlier, in what we can best describe as NFL-type situations, to the best that college has to offer. So people talk about over-evaluating a game or over-investing in a game. Well, let me ask you a question. I agree with consistency, but on some level, if you think the information that is present in the NFL has to be available to some degree in college for you to get a good feel for a player, I would I would challenge you to find a better game where the windows, the pass rushing lanes, the running lanes, everything was about as tight and well-played as you could possibly get. So if you want to know, are there players that emerge? Yes. Is it fair to wait a game that significantly? I think it is. If it's, if it's a game such as that, where every single instance and every single snap is about as gosh darn close as you're going to get to an NFL snap as possible, then I think you have merit to weight those reps or those plays heavily. I love the point that you just brought up there, Matt, because we've got on record here and somebody might be saying, wait a minute, these guys are talking, you know, out of both sides of you know what, because we've had converse, we've had conversations where you and I have said, well, we can't put so much stock in statistics and performance. You know, Daniel Jones against Clemson last year, Josh Allen when he was in college, you know, and, and, and we did say that because that's because the advantage that one team had was so stark it wasn't the equivalent of two nfl caliber teams out there it was impossible for daniel jones to be successful in that game against clemson it was impossible for josh allen to be successful in that game i believe it was against oregon his final year at wyoming but when there is a environment and there is a situation that could resemble an NFL type of game. And when you play Alabama and when Alabama plays LSU, I think you are getting that situation. So I do believe there's a lot of merit in, in looking at what we see and it's not overvaluing this game. It's taking stock in this game that this is a measuring stick and this is a fair measuring stick. And when I was watching Joe Burrow the other day, I felt like I was having and, and, and moving him up in my rankings, like mentally in my head to like, okay, he's ahead of Herbert now. Now the question is, am I putting him at one or am I putting him at two? And thinking about, is he going to be successful at the NFL level? That performance, and I know Alabama's defense is not as good as it's been in years past. But watching Joe Burrow the other day, I walked away with a feeling similar to what I thought of Deshaun Watson in those Clemson versus Alabama national championship games. And when all the sharks came out and wanted to say Deshaun Watson wasn't going to be a good NFL prospect and be a good NFL quarterback for a litany of reasons that they wanted to list, including miles per hour at the combine and other, and other ridiculous things. I never wavered on Deshaun Watson Because in the back of my head, I kept thinking about those two games against Alabama in the national championships. So I don't think it's overvaluing one game. I think if the game could resemble what we think an NFL game could look like, I think there's plenty of merit in really valuing that tremendously. And I think Joe Burrow had that opportunity. So if there was any lingering questions about him, 
He answered them all this week Hands in down. a hostile environment against yeah, on Alabama, the road, dude. Come Nick on. Saban, the, arguably the greatest coach in the history of college football. And Alabama makes their comeback. And most teams, most quarterbacks would have folded in that situation. The only ones we haven't seen fold against Alabama in that situation is Deshaun Watson in a big moment, which we've talked about. He's been able to answer the bell and 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 go for the kill shot and and finish off Alabama in the national championship. That's what Joe Burrow was able to do this week, and I think it speaks volumes about his his mental makeup. I think it speaks volumes about his personality that it's, he's not too big for the moment. And I think, I think it speaks volumes about what an NFL team is going to think of him because he might have leapfrogged to it this weekend on some team. Did, did he hit, did he win the Heisman? Cause I think he did. I did. To me, unless LSU has a really bad loss between now and the end of the year, right. Or he gets hurt. If he just keeps doing what he's been doing, I think that game won him the Heisman. And that's yep. no disrespect. To Tua, it's no disrespect. Or Justin to Fields, nothing. Justin Fields, it's no disrespect to Jalen Hurts, who put up another five touchdowns this week. But I think Joe Burrow on an undefeated LSU team yep. with that performance, 31 of 39, 393, and three touchdowns in Alabama and the win. Hard to think that that wasn't the night that Joe Burrow won himself the Heisman Trophy. I think I think it was. And Matt, any final thoughts on these two quarterbacks? No, no, no. no. The running backs, because that's a whole other separate conversation. <laughs> it's it's an LSU Alabama feel, guys. So that's it, right. It, I mean, it, it, even it. when we get to the Devi slant, I don't think it even extends past that. I mean, we have the Devi slant to talk about, it, and we're going to talk more about these guys. So these were the two biggest games on the planet. I mean, was Pete, was Penn State Minnesota and LSU Alabama? Two biggest games gave us two big, big, big viewing jobs. Absolutely. So let's take it to the running backs. And again, we're going to stay in this game because one guy we haven't talked about too much and another guy, like we said, we said he was one of the guys to watch because we didn't know if Tua was going to be hindered at all by the by his injury. And we said, will they put a little bit more on Najee Harris's plate? Well, they did. 22 touches, 19 carries, 146 yards and a touchdown, three catches, 44 yards and a touchdown. Najee Harris, I think this was his breakout, breakthrough game. And I hope that it, it got more people to look at Najee Harris the way that you and the way that I have seen him. And you have been at the forefront of saying, do not undersell this guy. He deserves to be talked about like so many of these other running backs from the 2020 class in the 2020 class. He just hasn't had the opportunity to show his versatile skill set. He did that this week. You wanted to run with power? He showed you running with power. You wanted to see a big man with some agility and some quickness and some change of direction skills? He showed that. You wanted a big man who could show you that he can catch the ball and be a weapon in the receiving game as well? Harris showed that. He answered the bell at every single aspect of, of the game this week. I've already said he's going to test better in the people want to knock him at times. I think for his athleticism, but he's going to test better than people think we've already talked about this. His adjusted 40 time, his jumps, his explosiveness, he's going to test pretty well. Maybe not the lateral, you know, quickness or the change of direction drills or whatever like that. But for a big guy, he's got some wiggle. He's got some movement. And you've been saying that all along. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 
I was really happy for Najee Harris because I think that this was finally the stage and the opportunity for him to really show out, and he did. And I think the biggest thing you should take away from that game is is that we have to stop judging agility by the way it looks. We have to judge it by the way it functions on the field. Is he able to make people miss? Is he able to find space? Is he able to perceive and act and find cutback lanes? Just because it doesn't look like the way that LaShawn McCoy would do it doesn't mean it's not functional and effective. Just because it doesn't look precisely like Adrian Peterson doesn't mean it's not good or effective. We have to begin to transition our our minds away from the aesthetics of the position and what we want it to look like. And this is why, as I've preached before, and and exactly what I spoke about last year at the Skill Acquisition Movement Conference um, in Minnesota was the idea of functionality. You know, was the player able to find a solution to the problem on the field? Was it solved quickly, correctly, rationally, and resourcefully? And Najee Harris showed that time and time again in that game. He was able to find a solution that fit his build and his style well. He was able to get up field and gain yardage. He was able to make guys missed. He was able to do it and take efficient cutback lanes. He didn't overstride or find, you know, or take roundabout ways to get to the actual space. He found pretty direct routes to space. And he did it in a way that allowed him to, to, to kind of make plays and move the football. And from a receiving standpoint, he showed that he's able to go one on one and make back shoulder fade catches. I mean, I think I, I think I gotta I gotta make sure I'm correct on this, but I believe it was at Commish Re, Commish McGrath is the actual um, Twitter handle, and it was at Commish McGrath, and he made a recommendation. And I'm not one for comps, Paul, but I kind of kind of raised my hand in kind of a field goal sign when I heard it, Stephen Jackson, and I was like, "Yep, there you go." That's exactly who Najee Harris reminds me of, and I went back to watch Stephen Jackson film just to see if it made sense. And you'd be shocked. You'd be shocked how very similar movers they are. You know, it's very upright running style, a very upright running style, but there's very slight movement of feet, very slight changes of direction in the lower body, very slight movements, very little, little, little micro adjustments that allow him to make sudden changes of direction without without having these dramatic lowering of their center of gravities and making these dramatic kind of like one leg plant and stop. He doesn't do that because his vision is so good. He has such great command of understanding the blocking angles of his teammates and the pursuit angles of defenders. He's very good at seeing the field. And as a result of that, he doesn't need to make these massive change of directions. He doesn't even have that in his repertoire. It's just not who he is. He knows if it gets one-on-one, he knows he can win. He can beat you with power. He can beat you with agility. Or he can try to find a way to use a combination of both to win. And he's just that good of a runner, Paul. And I, and I just was so glad to see him kind of come full circle for people. And you know what? I don't know how he's going to test. He didn't really test that great in high school. But, <coughs> excuse me. But it wasn't terrible. I imagine that he's going to test okay. And I think he's going to test well enough where people are like, it's a pass. Well, listen, by now, if we don't know the story with Dalvin Cook, if we don't understand the general stories following all these players, it really doesn't matter, provided that when you watch them on the field, 
they can do what they need to do and accomplish the goals that they're asked to do. So I don't know what they're going to do. I hope he tests very well. Honestly, I don't give a damn. I think he's a good running back. I think he's going to be a great pro. I don't think we're, I don't know if we're talking about a Hall of Famer here, but I think we're talking about a guy who's going to be a part of a team, be a part of a running back committee immediately right out of the box. Yeah, I mean, I think he's going to be a top 100 pick and he's going to be immediately added to a mix. Uh, yeah, listen, I mean, listen, Josh Jacobs didn't blow up the combine last year. Like, he's doing pretty good this year. Like you brought up Dalvin Cook. He had some issues at the combine. It, it, the running back is really the most the position that I think it has the least merit in terms of any type of success because it, there's just so much that goes into it. Uh, and then on the flip side, you know, we brought, we talked about him, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago that we talked about Clyde Edwards Hilaire. And then this week, his versatility, I mean, he's 5'8", 209 pounds, and they talked a lot about his height and, and everything on the, on the uh, broadcast the other day. But this guy runs tough. He runs with physicality Mm -hmm. he runs with quickness Mm -hmm. he puts his head down and finishes runs Mm -hmm. he's a good receiver out of the backfield this is a guy this is a guy who a hundred percent i'll be getting added to the scouting notebook as soon as uh i get an opportunity to this is a guy who could push his mix i'm not going to sit here and say he's going to be a top 100 guy because it's a deep class but this is a versatile player that's going to have a role at the NFL level that he could go round four or round five. And, you know, there's always a couple running backs every year, Matt. I know both you and I were big fans of Justin Jackson at a Northwestern when he came out. And we were surprised. I even, I even believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Matt Waldman was a big fan of him as well. I feel like we all talked about him a lot. And I feel like Clyde Edwards Hilaire could be one of those guys that isn't going to be the flashiest guy at the combine, but you watch that game, you watch the ways he could impact the way he can solve problems on the field and you get excited for what he can bring to a backfield. And I think there's going to be a place for him either in the round four or round five of the NFL draft. And this is a guy who's going to be work, work his way into a role at the NFL level because so many two and three man backfields. Now Clyde Edwards Hilaire brings a lot to the table. And I think this week, you know, showed his versatility to be effective inside runner, outside runner, using the pass game, pass protection. Showed it all this week. I mean, this was a game that I think elevated him from a guy that was maybe in that late round range to a guy who maybe could be a mid round guy and mm-hmm. show due to the versatility he showed this week. So it was really nice to see that. Any thought, any thoughts on Edward Tolaire before I take it to the wide receivers? Like, yeah, no, the only thing I would add is, you know, back in 2018, um, I saw him in the spring game at LSU and he was only just kind of creeping his way up at the depth chart up at that point. Um, he's a, an exceptionally, exceptionally good outside runner. He's very good when he's running laterally with his shoulders like lateral or perpendicular to the line of scrimmage. He's very good at seeing pursuit angles. He's very good at, at assessing blocking angles from that range. So when he's moving laterally, when he's not, when he's not running exactly downhill, when he's running a little bit more east and west as an outside runner, that's where he's exceptionally sensitive and well attuned. And you can even see it. You know, I mean, his best runs are runs that are either outside zone or some type of power off tackle run. That's where he excels. Now, getting downhill in this particular game, inside zone, getting downhill in a gap type scheme. Listen, 
He was excellent. The times he was asked to do it, he was functional. He found a solution. But you could see that his range and versatility on interior runs on the interior of the line just wasn't really as exceptional as those outside runs that he was good at. And that even goes back to the time he was back in the spring. What I really thought about him in this game, which separates him tremendously, is, oh my goodness, you are there really that many better receivers at the running back position? I, I just, I don't know. Because, I mean, listen, Najee Harris had the splash play. We know the, the back shoulder fade into the end zone. Got it. But when you watch Edwards Hilaire run routes, he's exceptionally explosive in and out of his breaks. He's exceptionally deceptive in and out of his breaks. He's very fluid catching the football and transitioning to a runner after the catch. Now, I'm not saying he's, you know, Christian McCaffrey. I think Christian McCaffrey was the best route runner I've ever seen at the running back position. But, man, Clyde Edwards Hilaire was really, really, really special running routes. He was better than J.K. Dobbins. He was better than Cam Akers. He was better than DeAndre Swift. He was more explosive in and out of his breaks. And I know people are going to say that's not possible. I don't know. Looked pretty good. It really, really did. So Clyde Edwards Hilaire is a player that I think if you're in a in a you know in a Devi type of setting or a dynasty type of setting, man, I, I was saying this on Twitter. DeAndre Swift, J.K. Dobbins, Cam Akers, Jonathan Taylor, then who? Then who? Because I feel like you can throw them all in a bag right now. Najee Harris, Clyde Edwards Hilaire, you know, Benjamin, Travis Etienne. Uh, Chuba Hubbard, um, Zach Moss. Who's your next guy? AJ Dillon. AJ Dillon. I mean, who who who's your next guys? I mean, it, would you mind any of them? There's going to be good running backs in there on day three because there's no way 10, 11 running backs are going to go in the top 100 picks. It's just not going to happen. You know, the broadcast coverage kept saying, kept bringing up the comp of Darren Sproles. And I think it was a lot for what you were just talking about. The, the smaller guy, the compact, but the, the route running, the versatility, the guy where you could spread out the field and run those inside zone runs, but better on the outside and on the perimeter. So, so I understood why the broadcast coverage of that game kept bringing up Darren Sproles. I thought, I thought I, I understood what, what they were getting at there. And, and then you, and hearing you talk about his route running and his explosiveness in and out of his routes, you can see some Darren Sproles in that regards, uh, as well. So really, impressive performance from him uh he's a guy who i think stock is big time up if we take this to the wide receivers i am going to veer away from alabama lsu slightly but there are at least a few names to bring up but i, I did want to mention a couple other guys here at the wide receiver position cd lamb continues to just put up video game type stats eight catches 167 yards and two touchdowns Firmly, I think, has established himself as, as either the number one or number two wide receiver in the class. For me personally, he's number two, but I think for a lot of people right now, they look at him as maybe number one. Michael Pittman Jr., who we've been talking about a lot recently, 13 catches, 146 yards, continues to just... Uh, put up statistics week in and week out, but there's a lot to like about his game. I think Pittman is a guy whose arrow is pointing way up. I think he's going to go higher than a lot of big name guys that maybe have been generating more buzz because of his size, his athleticism combination, his, his special teams ability, his play strength. 
Uh, I think Michael Pittman's stock is is squarely now in the top 100 mix. Uh, Denzel Mims, we were talking about him last week when we previewed uh, that game. He had six catches, 57 yards, and two touchdowns, making a factor in that. Tyler Johnson, who we're going to talk a little bit more about that game in the Debbie slant, but he came away seven catches, 104 yards, and one touchdown. Really had a really impressive play down the left sideline, but his route running is really impressive. I've already said I think the high end for him is a Robert Woods type if he if he can maximize everything. I love his overall. Uh, very smooth is, is how I describe Tyler Johnson. Uh, Tamari and Terry for Florida State, seven catches, 156 yards, and one touchdown. With the turmoil at Florida State, I think Terry is now a guy we got to start considering maybe in this draft class. He's a redshirt sophomore, but is he going to stick around? For, for what's gonna, for what's going on there at Florida State. Who knows who the next coach is gonna be? They, they're probably not gonna fix their offense and be some juggernaut next year. They got a lot of, of that line to build up. They don't have a, a clear cut quarterback that's gonna lead them back to the promised land. So I wonder if Tamri and Terry is gonna, ride to the NFL as a redshirt sophomore. I'm a fan of his game. I think maybe as a redshirt sophomore in a strong class, he doesn't go as high as he could if he went back to school, but I still think he'd be very much in the mix uh, at the end of that top 100 as well. I like his overall game. And then obviously uh, the Alabama guys, Devonta Smith just continues to make big play after big play. And I know his frame is thin, but I, we've seen enough guys at the NFL level now overcome that. We've seen John Brown. We've seen other guys, Deshaun Jackson, Marquise Brown. I think Devonta Smith is going to be a playmaker. I think he's another guy who can be that inside-outside versatility. I think he's best inside the slot, but he can get vertical from the slot, but he runs really good routes. Uh, you know, like when you look at him and Henry Ruggs, I think right now route running is clearly in Devonta Smith's favor. I think his play strength for a guy, even at that frame is good. So I think he's impressive. And then Jerry Judy, I know we were having a conversation. Uh, I forget who it was me, you, and, uh, uh, the, one of the Debbie watch guys, uh, fill me in who, which, which one of the Debbie watch guys were we talking oh, about? Uh, LJ. LJ, LJ the other night, uh, and we were talking about Jerry Judy, and we're going to hold firm. And I think there's going to be a lot of people that want to pull away from Jerry Judy as wide receiver one and maybe pivot to C.D. Lamb or somebody else. But, but, but Jerry Judy, when you watch him play and you really look for the nuance and the route and, and details of route running and receiver ability, I think Jerry Judy has it all. I still am... I think he's the best route runner in this. I think he's the smoothest of all the runners. I think very much like an Amari Cooper and Calvin Ridley almost like blended together. Uh, really impressive still. He didn't have any, you know, he only had five catch, 71 yards and a touchdown. But I think his lack of video game like stats, I think is more of a product of just how many weapons the Alabama team has. And if he was somewhere else, it would, you know, it, it would be very different. You know, if he was playing for Oklahoma, I, I think he'd be putting up CD lamb type stats. So, you you know, we don't have to get into the whole stats conversation. How I many you, you know, we have, we have our issues with, with, with that sometimes because it's not his fault. You know, we're, we're hurting him by saying he doesn't have a bigger market share of, of the offense, but that's not really his fault. So, uh, so I'm not going to hurt him one at one second at all, uh, in that regards. Any thoughts on any of these wide receivers from 
Lamb, the Pittman, to the Alabama guys, Denzel Mims, Tyler Johnson, Tamarine Terry. Anything with that before we take it to Debbie Slam? Because I have some names I want to throw at you, actually. Well, I'm going to actually, I would probably unveil it to you anyway to let you go ahead and do that. But I was going to say is, um, yeah, I think Devonta Smith was the biggest riser for me out of that group this past weekend. Um, I think the biggest thing I liked was, I believe Derek Stingley Jr. was covering him a couple of times. And um, they they showed in some nice close-ups of him. What he was doing at the line of scrimmage in terms of beating press man coverage or at least tight coverage at the line of scrimmage was unbelievable. I mean, he was just getting clean release after clean release. Not to say that he didn't work for it, but he got good clean releases off the line of scrimmage versus tight coverage. And like I said before, you know, the reason why we wait this game is not because of the teams involved, meaning by name but because of the caliber of players involved on both sides. It was a very representative, as good as we can get, version of an NFL game at all positions to the best of our ability. And I saw Devonta Smith do work, do work against press coverage. We know what type of coverage, the whole Rip-Liz match thing that, you know, that Saban likes to run. We know what type of coverage they play. And we know what type of coverage LSU plays. And I don't care which one you're going to call DBU. They both got talent. And Devonta Smith against press man coverage showed often the ability to get releases and get separation. And he really did a nice job at every level on every play. He looked really good. Stock massively up. He's over Henry Ruggs for me now. Just for people keeping score. And I... People probably, if they recall from our positional preview shows, I was not a, you know, over the moon person about Henry Ruggs. I was in the pre-draft process when we were talking about our way too early mock. But after watching him, I was like, well, I, it, it, maybe this is my own bias. I was never a big DJ Moore guy. I was, and so it stands to reason that maybe Henry Ruggs is going to be another guy that I need to see where he lands to really put the value in him. Devonta Smith, though. There's a lot of situations. You know what he reminds me of, Paul? A better version of D.D. Westbrook. Yeah, I can see that. Because I, I think here's the thing, and listen, I've done this long enough with you now. The difference with them is Devonta Smith shows more skill on the field. Yep. While Henry Ruggs is just – his speed is so rare that people look at him and are projecting development to happen – and then combining it with the speed to create a ceiling that maybe is higher than Devonta Smith. But if you're just basing it on what you see on film, you can't walk away without saying Devonta Smith is a more skillful player as we as they're both currently constituted. It, it, it's when we try to project long-term ceiling, upside, and stuff like that. And and that's where you know the NFL draft is not an exact science because that's what a lot of this is. But 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 just on skill alone, I think Devonta Smith is more skillful in more ways than Henry Ruggs. And I agree with you; it's not very close in that. It's where it's when you take into account projecting out Henry Ruggs into rounding out in some of those areas, and then having that ridiculous four two, four two four, whatever it might be, speed is is why I think he'll end up going higher than Devonta Smith. But I think there'll be more of a much more of a learning curve 
for Henry Ruggs to to be successful uh, because he isn't as skillful in the in the nuances of receiving yet. And I think that's where those two, the conversation is very easy to see that uh, when you watch them. So, so let's take this to the Debbie slant because I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners. Uh, Jason Hudson emailed me last week and the, the email was basically asking uh, my takes on two Penn state underclassmen. KJ Hamler and tight end Pat Fryermood, and kind of asking like we haven't really talked about them or discussed them much, and you know was it was it that we weren't fans of them? Was it a access to film thing? And, and I was you know as always very straightforward that listen, part of it is access uh, to enough film to make a determination. Part of it is as man I always say, you know we're two man operation, so sometimes it takes us some time to get around to to get around to all the guys, but I mean, could this email have been more at a, at a perfect timing because this was on Thursday of last week. And then I sit down to watch the Penn state game this past weekend. And these two guys are just absolutely going off. Yeah. And KJ Hamler, seven catches, 119 yards and two touchdowns, five foot, 976 pounds, but big play ability, the ability to, you know, to get vertical, to make things happen. And then tight end Pat Fryermood, six, five, two fifty six, seven catches, 101 yards. He was a guy that was at least on the radar as a, you know, as a Debbie tight end prospect to, to be monitoring, but both of these guys, have monster games this week. Uh, general thoughts on on these two underclassmen with this little caveat that I just heard about two hours before we went on air when I was listening to uh, Dame Brugler and, uh, and the Prospect to Pros podcast for The Athletic. And he was saying there are some NFL teams that are evaluating Friar Moots for this year because something that they think it, he could potentially make a case to be in this year's draft because he was in high school for five years and then now two years at a, in college, that there are some NFL teams that are evaluating him just in case he ends up trying to get himself in this draft class. And if so, Dane says he's heard from NFL teams that said if he was to get into this draft, he's being looked at as tight end one in this draft class. So I think that just speaks volumes on what type of level caliber prospect we're talking about. Any thoughts on Hamler and Fryermuth? Yeah, I mean, well, KJ Hamler and, and Pat Fryermuth, I, I agree with you. Uh, Fryermuth was somebody that was on the radar from our first uh, freshman notebook in 2018. We had him in there. Um, of all the tight ends in the country, he was one of the tight ends that really caught my eye in terms of his ability and overall uh, potential. That was the same year that Kyle Pitts came out. Um, so it was Kyle Pitts, Jeremy Ruckert, uh, Brevin Jordan, um, Pat Fryermuth. So Will Mallory. I mean, they were all the same class. I mean, if you think about those guys I just mentioned. Let me cut in for one second. Yeah. I kind of think the guys that you just talked about, like I'm constantly, I was teetering with uh, with the Debbie rankings that for the, for the notebook this weekend. And I think those guys that you just talked about, I think those guys might be the, the top four tight ends now in the Debbie unit. And it might push all the guys down who are this year. But I think you're talking Jordan, Pitts, Fryermuth, uh, Ruckert. I think those might be now the four most valuable long-term assets at the tight end position. 
Yeah. So yeah. I mentioned them all in that, all in that little span there. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. They're all already showing long-term viability and big time upside. Yeah. I only wrote up eight that year and it was the eight that I really liked. And those the guys that caught my eye from the, the film I watched. Usually when I'm watching the stuff for the freshman notebook, I'm probably watching like 25 or 30 tight ends. And, um, you know, again, it's a one man show when it comes to that stuff. So I, I, I try to watch like 30 of the tight ends and I try to say, you know, Hey, you know, which guys really stand out to me as being very skillful. And Fryermuth was one of those guys. Now, albeit at coming out, you know, he didn't have anywhere near, um, the repertoire and the overall skill that he showed now in terms of his game. Um, but you could see from a playmaking standpoint, from a receiving standpoint, that he was very precocious, especially at the catch point, making catches, making catches on the move, making catches coming out of his breaks. He looked really good at the catch point, and that was in high school. And I was like, well, if we can continue to develop and we can develop some route running skills with that size and that overall blocking ability, this is a guy that could be quite a handful. <coughs> Excuse me. Sure enough, he goes into Penn State. They develop him right alongside with Mike Gusecki. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, here we are standing now, and he's the starting tight end for them. And when you watch him, they use him in a variety of ways. You know, they really do move him around quite frequently. He is a guy that they use primarily as a receiver. Um, he does a lot of different types of things. He reminds me a lot of Hunter Henry in the types of movement skill that I see on the field. I don't think he's as dynamic as Hunter Henry. Hunter Henry is a very special player, as he's proving to be in the NFL. Um, but Fryermuth has some of that, some of that Hunter enter Hunter Henry esque combo tight end. I heard somebody compare him to Jason Witten. Um, I mean, these are all really incredible players that you're talking about Fryermuth comparing to, and I don't think it's unwarranted. But I, I would still temper my enthusiasm a little bit to say that, you know. That, that chess piece that is the tight end position is slowly becoming very, very used by a lot of teams and defenses are starting to counter it. And I think the movement skill of those tight ends is going to continue to need to be special and more special as time goes on. So I think Fryermuth is a great player. I love what he can do catching the football. I love his ability to run routes. I love what he can do as a blocker. I definitely would probably have him below Hunter Bryant for me. Um, I would still probably have Hunter Bryant right there at number one. I think his ability as a receiver is just that much more special, so to speak. Um, but he would arguably be it, at least in the top two or three for me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a fair fair assessment there uh, of what you just. Oh, and did. and by the way, KJ Hamler is is awesome. I'm very brand new to him this year. Really love his skill overall. He's extremely tough on the ball. Love him as a receiver. I really do. He reminds me a lot of, um, like a very much a, uh, I don't want to say, I don't want to say Debo Samuel, but it was that type of player. He's strong at the catch point. He's very, very good as a route runner, better than Debo Samuel was, but he's very good as a route runner. He's good in and out of his breaks. I really like KJ Hamler. Um, I was very, very impressed by him this year as I continue to watch him. He's an excellent player to keep your eyes on.
Yeah, and and let's stay in that game for a second. Listen, I think Tyler Johnson, we've talked about how much we like him, his route running, his smoothness. The best receiver for the, for Minnesota is the underclassman, Rashad Bateman. I think he is going to be a stud mm-hmm. in, when we get to him in terms of when he's available and eligible for the NFL draft. This past weekend, seven catches, 203 yards, and one touchdown. I think he's a guy who's going to be very much on the radar. I think the Minnesota quarterback is a guy that we're going to be talking about in the future. Any thoughts on Bateman, Amon Ross, St. Brown, we've talked a lot about. Another monster week, eight catches, 173 yards, and a touchdown. Jamar Chase, I think now he's elevated himself right up there, you know, into the Justin Ross range into the St. Brown range as maybe right at the top, Rondell Moore. Maybe those are four of the top guys with Bateman. Maybe those are five of the best, you know, guys in terms of next year's wide receiver class. A- any thoughts on Chase or Bateman or, or St. Brown? <laughs> well, honestly, it's so easy to celebrate all the hits, but sometimes you got to talk a little bit about the players that are growing very concerning. Justin Shorter had a couple opportunities in that game. And it was the first play of the game, the opening series, and it was a slant pattern, and the ball went right through his hands. And it was a clear drop. It was a good throw, on time, went right through his hands. Then there was another play where we can argue we want the ball was definitely underthrown significantly that led to the interception on that opening drive. And that's still the play where I want to see my top wide receiver Fight that, fight back through that pass and make sure it's not intercepted. And Justin Shorter wasn't able to do that. Then there was a play going into the end zone. He had the size advantage. He had the physical advantage. I think he even had the leverage on the pass. And we had another drop. That's two drops. One play where I felt like maybe he had the opportunity to maybe fight through it. And I literally just summarized probably the bulk of the snaps that he had in that game. Maybe he had two more. At some point, you got to start asking yourself what's going on. And I don't mean from a concerning perspective, like rational coaching, like how could this guy not be on the field? But more or less like the development hasn't really gone the way we would have wanted it. And, I mean, to say he was a monster coming out of high school is an understatement. This guy was like Julio Jones-esque in terms of what you were thinking he could do. I'm not entirely sure what went on and where we currently sit as a as a prospect in their system at Penn State. But it's hard not to feel concerned, genuinely concerned, about the trajectory, the career arc trajectory of Justin Shorter, because I'm not sure what to make of it. Now, with all that said, we're still talking about a young guy, a red shirt freshman. We're talking about a young guy who has everything in front of him. And we could be talking about a meteoric rise equivalent to what Juwan Johnson was, you know, where we're going to end very strongly. Who knows? I'm not giving up on the talent. I still don't give up on what I saw in high school. But you just wonder, is this the right fit? Is this a guy who could be ultimately answering, you know, entering the transfer portal at some point and going for a second win somewhere else? Like, I mean, it could be Juwan Johnson 2.0. Like, what is what is going on there? 
Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, listen, he had drops though. I mean, that's that's my point. Like, clearly, clearly, it's not just him not getting opportunities too. Clearly, there's got to be more involved. It's got to be issues that are happening in practice in terms of what his play style is, in terms of what his you know ability is on the field in practice. But he's not getting the reps in a game, Paul. I mean, he's just not. I mean, that game was a big game against Minnesota. And when they were in the red zone, you're not using Justin Short. There were times he wasn't even on the field in the red zone. When the hell do you use this guy? I mean, he's six foot four, 230 pounds or something like that. Something obscene. I forget what he is now, 225. If you're not using him in the red zone, then where do you find use for him? Yeah, it's baffling. It's baffling. I don't know what to say. So the only thing I can do, the most responsible thing is, dude, I must have missed on it. I must have saw it wrong. I mean, I really genuinely felt very confident, as as many people did, that he was the top wide receiver amongst all wide receivers the year he came out. And that's Amon Ross, St. Brown's in that class. We're talking about the Jalen Waddles of the world are in there. We're talking about... um the Terrence Marshall Juniors are in there. The Jamar Chases of the world. All those guys. And he was the by far number one guy. So, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't the only one. But you got to wonder. Maybe we got it wrong. Because he had some nice drops there in that game. If you want that stat, it would be different right now. If he caught a touchdown and two catches on the opening drive. I would be saying it's got to be, there's got to be an issue about with coaching and like just overall rationality. But I don't know. He didn't really do anything in that game at all. They barely looked his way. So I don't know what to make of it. Yeah, it's tough to make sense of it. It, it really is. So, Matt, any any other quick thoughts uh, in the Debbie Slant? Anybody else you want to bring up before we do a little quick rapid fire on, on previewing week 12 and the NFL draft report? No, I, the, the only player I'll keep bringing up is amongst the, the guys that should be on your Debbie radar this upcoming season, Brees Hall continues to impress. He's a player that you want to make sure you have on your short list of players to acquire this offseason if you're in a Devi league. And, of course, as Paul said earlier, obviously we want to keep the tight ends at a premium because I think this is the year to zig and zag differently if you're in one of those leagues. I think Kyle Pitts, Brevin Jordan – all those guys should be right now on your radar as we move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Make sure uh, you are you are watching those guys and you are seeing if you can buy them and get them on your team. So let's take this to week 12. I can't believe we're already previewing week 12, but here we are. Things I'm looking forward to this weekend. Uh, I know Michigan State is falling on hard times, but Michigan State, Michigan is still a game that always brings out uh, a fun game, obviously, on the Michigan State side. I'll, I'll be watching Brian Lewarki. Still don't really see what some people see with him. Uh, but, you know, maybe a, a late date for type quarterback there on Michigan. The wide receivers still usually generate most of my attention. Donovan Peoples-Jones, Tariq Black, Nico Collins, Shea Patterson, and the underclassmen running back, Zach Charbonnet, is what I'll be watching for in that one. Wisconsin, Nebraska, obviously Jonathan Taylor, the key guy there to be honing in on for Wisconsin. For Nebraska, uh, J.D. Spielman, a, a wide receiver who I think could be a slot guy, 
It's a fun date for Reese, similar to uh, Greg Dorch last year at a Wake Forest, maybe a little bit quicker uh, with better long speed than than Dorch. But Spielman is a very similar player to him. Adrian Martinez, the underclassman quarterback, keep your eyes on him. Uh, Navy versus Notre Dame. Obviously, on the Notre Dame side, I'll be watching Cole Komet, Chase Claypool, two guys who I think arrows are pointed up. I think they can both go higher than maybe people think they could in terms of their draft stock. Georgia Orburn, uh, Georgia versus Auburn is obviously the big one this week. Uh, Georgia needs this win. A big win on the road against Auburn would go a long way in keeping them solidified there at that fourth spot in the playoff rankings. So eyes on Fromm and Swift uh, and the rest of the Georgia Bulldogs there. Obviously on the other side, Seth Williams, Bo Nix, uh, Auburn. So we'll see if they can muster up enough offense in that game to beat Georgia. And then Minnesota, Iowa. Obviously we start Minnesota make the big jump up in the rankings. Obviously Tyler Johnson, Rashad Bateman, two guys you should be keeping your eyes on the most. And on the Iowa side, Nate Stanley, uh, who some people think is a guy who could be in the early date remix in terms of draft stock for the 2020 NFL draft. Anybody you want to add that you have your eyes on from those games, or is there another game flying under the radar that you that you have set the DVR for? No, 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 no. My DVR is quite full at this point, and I'm kind of checking out a lot of games from earlier this year. Um, I, I would say, though, I want to see the continued kind of uh, growth and, and province of uh, Jake Fromm. I want to continue to see him kind of build off of his recent success because I really do think – that he'll end up being in that top five court conversation if he comes out this year. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think that is something for sure. So, so it's gonna be, it's gonna be fun. Another big week. Every so much always to talk about. Next week, guys, we'll also maybe we'll detour away from the the, the rankings unless something drastic needs to be talked about. And I would like to spend the first couple of minutes of the show next week maybe talking about some Senior Bowl accepted invites because those have started oh. to go out over the last couple of weeks. I can't believe we're Michael ready. Pittman. We're ready at that point, and that's always a fun time to to start seeing who's been who's uh, accepted their invites to to that. I think it's gonna be a fantastic Senior Bowl rosters this year with a lot of players that we've been talking about uh so so i'm excited to 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 talk about that a little bit and examine that a little bit further so let's wrap up tonight with the nfl rookie report for week 10 of the nfl season just a couple names here let's start the wide receiver position because a guy close to our hearts as a member of the Giants, Darius Slayton, 10 catches, 121 yards, and two touchdowns. We've talked about him at least two or three times now this year. And this week, he continued to show his rapport with, with Daniel Jones. He continued to show not only his ability to make plays vertically down the field, not only to make plays at the catch point and go up and high point the ball, but also showing some versatility in terms of good route running, extending and catching the ball away from his body, showing good hands. Darius Slayton is a guy whose stock is way up in terms of, I think this is a steal the Giants have found. I think I understand, you know, you could have some long-term concerns about how many guys with Barkley and Ingram and if Shepard can come back from his concussion at some point and Golden Tate so he could start next year and be number fifth guy. Yeah, he could. But at the same time, he's developing a rapport with Daniel Jones. Golden Tate is on basically moving forward after this year, a year-to-year contract. So who knows what his future holds? Sterling Shepard and the concussions, who knows what his future holds? Evan Ingram only, I think, has one year left or two years and then the option year left on him. So the Giants are going to have the decision to make with him. You know, so 
there's an opportunity. I think Darius Slayton is very much going to be in the their top three wide receiving pecking order for next year. I think because he doesn't have the name value as other guys or the draft pedigree, to be honest with you, I kind of wait for him to have a, a, a bad week or two. And then I try to pounce on this guy and get him for a mid third round rookie pick or something like that, or a late third round rookie pick. If that can be the cost, because I think, I think there's something there with this kid. You know, we were fans of him in the pre-draft process that we thought he had a shot to maybe be a top 100 pick because of his speed and his, his, you know, tactical value he brought to a team. He ended up falling to round five and the Giants might've gotten a steal. Uh, Nicole Hardman, I'm going to say right now, buy low on him now or in the off season, preferably if, if you wait to the off season, do it soon after the season ends. I have a, my gut feeling is Sammy Watkins is not going to be back with the Chiefs next year. Demarcus Robinson's a free agent. Probably he's going to be gone. And I think Sammy Watkins could even be gone. I think Nicole Hardman this week, one catch, 61 yards, 60 yards and a touch. Every time he touches the ball, it looks like he's playing at a different speed. Like everybody else is on slow motion. He's on like, you know, ultra fast. It, it, it's just staggering. Andy Reid is going to find ways to get him the ball and he's going to become a consistent fantasy force. I do believe that in the future. So I think the, the look of maybe there's not a clear cut defined role for him is an opportunity to buy him now, but don't wait till the offset. Don't wait to Sammy Watkins is, is, is released or traded. Try to act, be proactive and get him either now or as soon as the season ends. And I think in the long haul, you'll be excited. Andy Isabella, we talked about him last week. He's got a few more looks this week, three catches, 78 yards. They need another guy to develop and be a vertical threat in the playmaking. So I think Andy Isabella is the guy still would be looking to target him. Uh, and then Marquise Brown, uh, four catches, 80 yards, and a touchdown. We talked about him a little bit last week. You know, the chemistry that he is for, slowly forming with Lamar Jackson, I think, is going to make him a wide receiver, too. A uh, little bit inconsistent at times, uh, boom-bust wide receiver, too. But I think that's what his future holds. Matt, any thoughts on those wide receivers that I just mentioned? No, Darius Leighton, though, definitely caught my eye um, since he's been having the starting role. And this week, he really looked good getting releases at the line of scrimmage on short and intermediate routes. And that's one place where it kind of shows his development from where he was in college to where he is now. And I'm going to tell you something. People talk about the wide receiver quarterback combination. It's just as important as to what the quarterback thinks of their wide receivers as it is of the talent of the wide receivers themselves. This is a very much mutually beneficial relationship. If your quarterback's comfortable with your wide receiver, it really doesn't matter what level of skill you perceive them to have. What matters is what does that quarterback think of that particular player? It reminds me a lot of Mario Manningham. Yeah, I think I think I think that I think that's I think that's a good comparison. I can I can totally uh see that argument there uh that you just mentioned. So if we take this to the running back position, Josh Jacobs continues to be impressive. Sixteen carries, seventy one yards and a touchdown. This week chipped in three catches, thirty yards, continue to be the, the bell cow and the focal point of that Raider offense. I think he is a slam dunk top ten dynasty running back moving forward. Devin Singletary, I mentioned him last week. He thought he was going to get an opportunity to kind of seize control of that backfield. Did not happen. Only got 11 touches, 50 total yards. There's still 
listen, I know some people are really high on him, but I still think Buffalo is going to make a move for another big time back to add to that mix to take some of the pressure off of Josh Allen. And David Montgomery, I know we talked about him last week too. And when we were playing the name game of 2020 pick or player, I said, give me the 2020 pick. I still look at David Montgomery and I still have my, I think he's a good player. But I, I think that's where his ceiling is. I think he's a little bit of a better version of Jordan Howard. He has a little bit more receiving capabilities than a Jordan Howard. But I, I do think he is a little bit limited to be more of like a RB2 type, a mid to, to low in RB2 type. So I think I would gamble still with the 2020 pick. I think David Montgomery is a guy who, if the offense was clicking on all cylinders, he could be very productive. Right now, Mitchell Trubisky really struggling. But Singletary and Montgomery, I'd much prefer Montgomery moving forward. Uh, but I still think if the price was right, I'd be okay willing to move uh, Montgomery if the price is right. Any thoughts, Matt, on those three running backs? No, you hit everything pretty much there. I know you've been bringing them up every week, so I'll say them again. Irv Smith continues to play a yep. vital role for the Vikings right now with Adam Thielen injured. I think that role is just going to continue to grow. And even if this year there's some peaks and valleys, I think next year he could be the third weapon on that pass offense, uh, not counting Dalvin Cook catch passes out of the backfield. I think after Diggs and Thielen, Irv Smith could be a guy that could be next year's Mark Andrews. So I think he, I think he could be the guy that next year people are like, he might have a breakout year and then we might see it happen where he might push his way into that top eight top 10 tight end mix uh and not be just one of those guys in that you know 10 to 25 mix that are pretty much all the same i think earthman has a chance to get there and then let's round it out with the quarterbacks daniel jones in the battle of new york 26 of 40 308 yards and four touchdowns again ball security an issue had a fumble pick uh six return for a touchdown he needs to show a little bit better pocket presence in terms of protecting the football and feeling the pressure. But those are things that I think are fixable. But what we continue to see in him is a guy that can make a mistake and come right back the next drive or two and, and throw touchdowns. I, I love that toughness. Overcoming adversity, I think, is such an important trait of a characteristic of a really good to great NFL quarterback. I think Daniel Jones has that. I've been impressed with the ball placement and the accuracy. To me, it's only the ball protection. It's not even the interception so much. I mean, 15 touchdowns, eight interceptions. We can live with that as a rookie. It's really the fumbles. He's got to do a better job protecting the ball. I think that's something that he can fix. And if that wasn't an issue right now, I think right now he'd be getting glowing reports at what people would be would be talking about at him right now. And he is doing what he's doing very undermanned. The Giants offensive line was missing three guys this week as the game went on. Their offensive line is not very good to begin with. Saquon Barkley has missed most of the games of Daniel Jones' starts. And then the ones he's been back, he has not looked like vintage Saquon Barkley. Uh, Evan Ingram has missed games. Sterling Shepard has missed games. Their wide receiving corpse is decimated and their defense does them no favors. So I think Daniel Jones has been very impressive with what he's been working with. It's just the fumble issue that he has to get corrected. And then Kyler Murray, best game of his career, 27 to 44, 324 yards and three touchdowns. Showed the ability to push the ball vertically this week. Hit Christian Kirk for a couple long touchdowns this week. Uh, as Arizona continues to build the infrastructure around him. I think we're going to even see Kyler Murray uh, become an elite 
elite level fantasy quarterback. I think stock big time up on Kyler Murray. There's not a lot of guys besides the, you know, Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Russell Wilson, uh, Deshaun Watson. I think you make the case Kyler Murray's fifth. If I had to pick a quarterback for dynasty right now, I think a Kyler Murray would be fifth on my ranking. I remember when we were doing dynasty rookie drafts and I took Kyler Murray in a, what was it? A non two QB league. I think I took him number five overall. And I was, and we were laughing about it because because we were like, how is that possible? How would you ever <laughs> consider taking a guy like Kyler Murray in a non two QB league, you know, number five? Well, if you're, if you have Kirk Cousins as your quarterback, maybe you're fine with that. But if you don't, if you're like, maybe I have to think about maybe trading him and using that draft capital, who could I get? Kyler Murray it wasn't a bad pick at five this year. He no. wouldn't have been a bad pick at number two or three, right? I mean, Josh Jacobs would have went off number one. I don't think anybody argues that that's who you should have been the number one rookie pick, right? Yeah. After that, you can't tell me Kyler Murray wouldn't have been in the mix for number two. No. I mean, it's just crazy, right? I mean, yeah. He really has matured that much. So, no, I mean, <clears throat> when it comes to, and I apologize to everybody. You guys can all hear I'm kind of straining my voice. So I, I desperately apologize for whatever, to whatever degree I'm making this listen very difficult for everybody. Um, but this rookie class was a lot of glue, a lot of glue pieces, a lot of pieces that are going to be important to championship teams, but they may not end up being those game changers for their respective teams universally. And I think that's that's okay. I don't think that that means it's a bad class. I just do think that this particular class has got a lot of glue pieces in it, those pieces that are going to make championship teams, but may then not end up having all the guys, so to speak, the, the guys that we want on our respective teams. Yeah, absolutely. So it's going to be fun to continue to follow that guys have this discussion uh, week in and week out. So there it is, guys, the NFL draft report for week 11, the tail of the tape as we previewed week 12, the Debbie, uh, the Debbie slant for week 11, and then the NFL rookie report for week 10. Guys, hopefully you've been enjoying these shows. If so, please get over to the website, ssfootball.com. Check out the premium content tab. Uh, and maybe give our notebooks a chance for $9.99. You get access to all four of our notebooks. The rankings notebook, which has access to all our different rankings, draft eligible rankings, Debbie rankings, NFL rookie rankings, freshman rankings. After the season, it has our tiers once we know who's in and out of the NFL draft. Then after the draft, it has our post-NFL draft rookie 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 rankings you get all of that updated throughout the year that's pretty much updated for almost 365 days uh for your liking you get the nfl uh you get the scouting notebook which has player profiles probably in over 75 80 guys there'll be a lot more guys added things updated things separated with once people declare and and who ends up staying uh that's updated throughout from that's been active and updated since basically Labor Day weekend and will be a lot of updates post uh, season in the pre-draft months. And then obviously late March to mid-April, you get the new freshman notebook and then the 2020 NFL draft projections notebook all as well. If you can't purchase that please at least rate review and subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast we greatly appreciate it so matt any final thoughts or or let me close it out no no thank you everybody and i appreciate you tolerating my voice as i cough my way through this episode uh but that's how much we love it and we're all here because we love this game and because 
We can't get enough of it. I mean, we just we just talked about the rankings for 10 minutes. I mean, this is what it's all about, guys. Thank you so much for all of your patronage, talking online, hooking up, talking. It's it's really, really, really been a pleasure, and thank you so much for uh, bearing with my voice this week. Absolutely. Matt, uh, Matt the Trooper, uh, giving us it, uh, his effort tonight, a little under the weather. So on behalf of Matt, on behalf of our sound tech engineer, David Nakano, and myself, thank you for joining us, and we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday. Sunday.